Acts chapter 6. Um, so we've been in a series going through this book. It's a story of the early church and how uh, this thing spread and the movement that gathered all this momentum, and it was this really unstoppable force. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, if, hey, would, would we mind showing that slide of the Stanzel family one more time? Uh, I figure this is kind of a cool little uh, segue into what we'll be looking at here this morning, just a quick couple things to say about them. Um, so, they'll show it. This slide of the Stanzels. So, um, yeah, if you're like me, anytime you ever hear people talk about missionaries, especially if you don't know them, it's just like you hear blah, 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 and you just, right? I mean, it's easy to like, check out because like, you there's no personal connection with these people. You have no idea who they are. They're just a group of people that you see up on the screen. It's you know, no big deal. And unfortunately, it's kind of a bummer because it's like, you know, like, but, but I get it. I mean, I understand it. We're like on information overload in today's culture, and so you know, a picture of people, sometimes it's easy to just kind of not have that much of an impact. But um, I always like to try to kind of breathe a little bit of life into animation, uh, animate who they are to kind of help us connect with them a little bit further. Um, so, so Leah grew up basically on the Central Coast here, uh, North County, Tascadero, um, Templeton area, went to school up there. Um, she started coming to our church when, I think, fresh out of high school, somewhere around there. Uh, she actually started walking with Jesus here at Calvary Slow and was trained and discipled and um, then at one point wanted to go to a Bible college there in Hungary, and that's where she met uh, Balaj. And if you're like trying to figure out what, kind of, what type of a name is Balaj, well, it's definitely not American. Um, you're like, no-brainer there. But um, so anyways, why do I say that? Just for a couple of things, because um, Leah was, was just like you guys, like she's sitting right where you're at. Like it's easy to kind of have this disconnect, like how do I even relate to someone? Like she was somebody that literally just came to this church, sat there, sang the songs, heard the messages, tried to make sense and how to figure out how to make life work and walk with Jesus and all these other types of things. And uh, yet, you know, now God has uh, led her. She's uh, made choices to follow God all the way here and a lot of cool things happening. So uh, one thing, one final thing I want to say about the family that's kind of cool that will be my official segue into this morning's message is, um, so they live in Hungary and Hungary is a very um, diverse community, but there's a lot of like underlying Prejudices, prejudices and tensions that are there within the culture. You know, not too dissimilar to ours, but um, there they're really poignant and really strong. Um, and yet, um, one, there, there's a people group in, in Hungary uh, that for the most part, um, they, they, just, they just hate, like the people, Hungarians, the nationalists, really, really just despise, dislike, hate this people group. And if, once I say their name, you're going to you're like, like have some level of connection. They're, they're just simply known as gypsies. Um, and they're sort of this nomadic group of people that nobody really knows kind of their history. There's all sorts of conjectures as to where they come from, but nobody really knows where they come from, but they just kind of like cycle through, and for the most part, uh, the general consensus toward this community of people called gypsies is just despite. They're viewed as dirty, they're viewed as trashy, they're viewed as just eyesores to the culture and the community, they're viewed as just sort of drags in society, they, they take welfare, they, you know, just to sit there, and they're, they're, they're just an annoyance to the majority of people. And so Balaj and, and Leah have a real heart for the gospel, and they really believe that the power of the gospel is to transcend um, the typical types of people that are kind of viewed as annoyances, and that really, that gospel is for them. It's for those people that are marginalized or alienated or despised or hated and uh, so they, they wanted to send a message because they recognized that even within the church that they're pastoring, which Balaj pastors a church, it's a small church, it's, you know, 
probably under 100 people, maybe 150 or so, somewhere on there, on a good week. And in this little village called uh, Page, that's spelled P-E-C-S. Um, I have no idea how you get Page out of there, but if I end up going this, this summer, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know how the language works. But the point of the matter is um, there were these prejudices that uh, Balaj recognized within his own community, uh, this hatred towards these, uh, this people group called the Gypsies. And so he was really serious about sending a very strong message to the community of people that he ministers to, uh, how serious God is about reaching out to the least desirable, most highly disliked in the culture and community. And he wanted to do it in not only by preaching and communicating, which he does regularly, kind of like me, opens up the Bible, just teaches. Um, in fact, if you've been around here for any length of time, you've actually heard Balaj preach here at Calvary Slow several times. Um, but he wanted to send it in a very strong, poignant way. So what he decided with him and Leah was, we're going to adopt these unwanted um, gypsy children. And a couple of their children actually are, are that, the, the ones that look nothing like them. The, those are gypsy children that they discovered that were basically unwanted. And they're like, we want them. Because we believe that the gospel is about a God that goes for those that are unwanted. And it was this powerful message because... Uh, there were people in the church, the community, that were, you know, offended by that because, like, how dare you? You know, they're dirty, trashy people. But they're like, no, they're not. They are loved by God. We believe the gospel is big and is, uh, it reaches out to those. And it's, it's this really powerful, living testimony, not only of what they say, but also by what they're doing. So, again, hopefully that, that little story takes these people from just simply being a, an image up on a screen where you're like, I have no idea who the people are, womp, 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 but to actual real people that love Jesus and are living the gospel out in a really cool, profound way. So that dovetails into what we're going to talk about this morning. So hopefully you guys have your Bibles open to the book of Acts chapter 6. We're going to look at a little subject in the story of the book of Acts where Luke is telling the story of the early church. And what he's telling us is this constant, ongoing series of stories that kind of are all interwoven and, and connected at the same time. And in short, what I'll just simply throw out is this next section that we're now embarking upon is a very long section. There's a lot of uh, information that's going to be given to us. Now, we're not going to be looking at all this morning. But it, it, if I can think of it this way, it telescopes into all these bigger, broader uh, realities of the church. In other words, what, what Luke's going to basically do is going to take us on this radically unexpected journey, which is going to involve crossing over some of these massive boundary markers and, in a figurative sense, leaping over these high walls. And the big thing that he's going to be taking us on this journey is, is known as human prejudice. So what he's going to begin to unpack for us is that the gospel so big, it has this momentum that it's actually going to be undoing these typical or stereotypical forms of human prejudice that have literally marked humanity from its, from its very beginning. And, and what I mean by that, and why I think this is sort of the theme that Luke is taking us on in this journey, is because the way the story is going to start out today in Acts chapter 6, is it's going to uh, bring us face to face with this radical conflict, which the, the, the source of the conflict actually is prejudice. And I'll, and I'll talk more about that in a second. But this story begins, like I said, begins to telescope out into these bigger, broader scenarios that go around the entire world. When we started the book of Acts, we said at the very beginning of Acts chapter 1, there's this little statement that Jesus comes on the scene and he's like, look, 
Um, I'm going to give you my power, and the power is going to come upon you as my people, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So he starts with this local city, local scenario where they're from. Uh, it's going to go into Judea, which is kind of like the county or the region. It's going to then bleed on over into Samaria, and then he says to the uttermost parts of the world. And what we said at the very beginning is that that, that, that is basically Luke's template for the rest of the book of Acts, where Luke's going to kind of take this uh, the storyline and kind of follow along this measured uh, telescoping reality of what's going to be happening. But what's interesting is what we're going to read this morning is this little scenario of a crisis that kind of begins to percolate within the community of Jesus people. But the way that it's handled is done so well, it actually begins to move on. The momentum begins to carry out into the rest of the world. So here's an example. So by the end of this scenario that we'll read about in just a moment, uh, we begin to see that from this point forward, this, uh, this community that was once exclusively Jewish, um, Jerusalem-centered people. Now, there were a bunch of other people that kind of came in. We see that on the day of Pentecost. But this, this church, this community first began with just strictly Jewish, culturally Jewish people. But now... Uh, we're seeing that it's beginning to, those, those boundary markers that once defined it as being strictly Jewish is now, be, they're beginning to fall down. They're beginning to erode. And what's happening is all these non traditional uh, Jewish people are beginning to come in and not just simply be coming in, but they're being welcomed in. They're being loved. So let me give you an example. We live in a culture and a society. So if I were to kind of throw out a sort of an object lesson, uh, what if we were to gather you into a you know, a house with a roof over your head, and in that house, we're going to bring in not only your favorite people, you know, celebrities, heroes, whatever, but also your least favorite people. So let's say, for example, if you lean right politically, we're going to bring Obama into that house. He's going to be your little friend. Um, or other people that are extremely uh, type of people that you normally would not like to work with. But in that household, there's like rules that are going to be set, and those rules are going to basically say, here's how we're going to conduct ourselves and treat each other and be, respond. But here's also the, re, the reactions that will happen if you fail to abide by that. So in other, words, in, other, in other words, in order to keep a community of people together, they're always bound together by both law and order. Law meaning here's structure, here's uh, principles, here's precepts, here's laws, here's legislation, here's policies or politics. To keep everybody uniform and unified, but if you fail to abide by that, here's um, the consequences to your failure to that. So, you know, you have jail time, which is kind of like uh, time out for adults, um, and you have all these other forms of order set in place, set in motion, to, in other words, to keep everybody together. But what you don't have in that house, so you may have law and order in that house where people live together because they're forced to live together, because they recognize we need to abide by the law, um, but if we fail, so in other words, rather than you know, hurting someone or wounding someone, you, you live with this sense of fear. In other words, the fear of the consequence is actually greater than uh, violating that fear. So you're held together, bound together by both law and order. That's the way society has always worked from the beginning of time. Always. Get this? What you have in the church is something profoundly different. It's not law and order. There, is, there are laws and there is order. But what you have at the very root and the core of the church is community of originally Jewish, 
Jerusalemites now expanding out to receive non-Jewish or Jewish people that are not very historically or traditionally Jewish people on into Samaritans, on into Gentile, which are non-Jewish people. And you have this household of people that are radically different from each other coming together. It's not law and order is keeping them together. It's love. They're bound together not by fear of violating the law. They're bound together not by this uniform desire like we're going to abide by the law. That's the way society works. What you have here in the church is, is this body of people saying, we agree to love each other and figure out how to apply the law of love, the, 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 the word of God to our lives in order to help us work through, navigate through the challenges and the difficulties and the hardships that we're going to face, because we're going to face them no matter what, because every community, every society of people will always face some form of conflict, but we will agree to allow Christ to help define and bring together our hearts so that we can do this in a way, not to where we just simply coexist side by side, but to where we actually flourish as a community of people. You guys following so far? All right. So with that, what I want to do is I'm going to, I'm going to begin to jump in because that is the situation. So I want to read the passage that we're going to be looking at here this morning. And then uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the historical background and some other things that might sound a little bit boring to you, but hopefully it'll make some sense. So Acts chapter 6, I'm just going to read the verse, first six verses, and then I'll pray and we'll jump in. Verse 1 says this, now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, so this community of Jesus people were growing says that a complaint by the Hellenists uh, arose against the Hebrews. I'll more on who the Hellenists are and the Hebrews are in just a second. Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food is the implication. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, and they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men that are of good repute or reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And then they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, uh, Philip, uh, Prochorus, uh, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Paramias, and a few other names that are difficult to pronounce, so I'm not going to. Verse 6, it says, uh, and then they set them before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid hands on all of them, and the implication is that this actually was a good act, and it actually brought resolve to an otherwise conflict-ridden situation. So I'm going to pray, and we'll jump in. We're going to talk a little bit about how God has this ability, if we allow him, to bring redemption in the midst of crisis. Anybody got crisis? Don't raise your hand. Uh, in your life, we, we, we truly believe that God actually provides means by which we can find some level of resolve or help or assistance in the midst of our crisis. So God, we ask you right now that you would help us and open our eyes. We pray that you would show us, God, just your grace and what you provide for us. Um, We need you. We just confess our need for you. And God, we pray that you would move in our time together here. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's talk a little bit about this historical background. Um, this is really important. There's a couple words here that may or may not have um, um, meant anything to you, so I want to talk about those. One is the word Hellenist. So who are the Hellenists? Uh, what is this group of people? Um, really, to understand this, you've got to go really far back in history, and I'll just do a real brief historical uh, sketch of this. So you've got to go back around 722 years prior to Jesus. 
Uh, this is during a period where a very large empire called the Assyrians came in to the region of Israel. And they basically deported or forced in a migration upon the, the dwellers of the region of, of Jerusalem uh, and Israel. So imagine being here in America and let's say, for example, Canadians came all the way down, they took over, it will never happen, but imagine if it did. And then they're like, we're taking you all the way up back to Saskatchewan. And you're like, I don't want to go to Saskatchewan. Or they're like, you're coming by force, you're forced to migrate. So it's like, now you leave this absolutely beautiful paradigm life here on the Central Coast for Saskatchewan. So um, what a horrible, horrible, uh, just, but just follow me of the train of thought, that's what happened in Israel. So, and these people were basically taken away from their home country into a foreign land and basically forced into this migration and forced to adapt into a brand new culture, into a brand new civilization. Um, fast forward a couple hundred years to around 588 BC. This is another very large empire. Empires kind of like grew really big and uh, had power and exercised their authority, and they uh, went around conquering lands, but the problem is that there was always another bigger, greater, more powerful empire that would arise you know, a few hundred years later and uh, come over and swallow up that fish, and then you just kind of get the idea. It's like everybody kind of moves down the food chain. And so these, this very large uh, community called the Chaldeans, they came and basically do the same thing that the Assyrians did a couple hundred years uh, earlier. So what you have is this movement in Jewish history that was called, it was given a name called the diaspora. And what that means is that these people were dispersed. So simply that the Jewish people were uh, uprooted from their territory, uprooted from their land, and they were dispersed from their territory into all these other parts of the world. So they were forced to adapt to a brand new culture, brand new civilization. So fast forward a little bit to the region or the time of uh, Alexander the Great, who goes around, conquers everything. But what Alexander the Great did was, was, was unique, was he brought, he had this vision that, um, that, that Grecian culture was the best, that Grecian literature was the best, uh, Grecian understanding and art and all of these other things that were attached to Greece, uh, Greece was, was better than any other uh, civilization culture. So he basically brought Greek culture into the entire known world. And so he was kind of the big fish that swallowed up all the other smaller fish. But in doing so, he also brought this Greek culture to the entire world. This, was, this process was actually called Hellenization. So in other words, if you lived in an area that was uh, in the far remote part of the Middle East and uh, Alexander the Great came through there, he would basically set up milestones and means of education and teaching and training and art and poetry and writing and all these other types of things. So you now would learn the main language. So rather than speaking, you know, Farsi or whatever you would learn over there in Persia, you would now begin to speak according to the common language, which was called Greek. So, so this is the big idea. So there were these, these Jews that lived in these remote parts of the world that were Hellenized. Now, fast forward to the time of the church and Christianity, first century, um, you would have Jews coming from all around the world into the region of Jerusalem being impacted by this brand new movement uh, called you know, Christianity. It wasn't actually called Christianity, but it was called the Way or Followers of Jesus, whatever you want to call it. And so in this group, you would have uh, Hebraic Jews, and this would have been Jews that were faithful to the Torah, they were kosher, and then you have within the same setting or context, these Hellenistic Jews. These were Jews that basically probably were not necessarily kosher. They didn't eat according to a strict diet. They didn't dress like typical Jews. They didn't look 
like the typical traditional Jewish people. They didn't speak Hebrew. And this was a really big deal to the, he- to the Hebraic Jews. So why would this be a big deal? Well, to understand why this would have been a big crisis point for Jewish people, um, strict Jewish faithful people there in the first century that were now converting to Christianity or following Jesus, because the Jews had this, this narrative that was sort of embedded in their mindset that God made these promises. He said to you know, Abraham and to his descendants that you're right. There are two big things. One, there was the promise of God that I'm going to give you territory. And it's called you know, Palestine or Israel or whatever you want to call the land. I'm going to give that land to you. That's my gift to you. But your right to remain in the land, your right to stay in that land, stay in that territory. In other words, rather than being forced into deportation, your right to stay in that land will be dependent upon your fidelity to following me. You guys following so far? So there, there is basically a twofold promise. God says, I'm giving this to you, but it's also connected to Israel's fidelity or faithfulness to God's word. In other words, to follow the traditions of Moses. So here what you have is sort of a conflict. So you have these Hebraic Jews that look at Hellenist Jews as sort of failures. Like, like you even may be part of the fact that we have entered in this diaspora. You are responsible because we are no longer a unified nation living in the land, that we are dispersed because of people like you. You have not remained faithful to the Torah. You have not remained faithful to the traditions and the teachings of uh, Yahweh through Moses. You have not remained faithful to kosher laws and so on and so on. So forth. Now, what you have are these two groups of people coming together under one roof called the church. And you got conflict. And it particularly had to do with widows. All right? So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, uh, in understanding the conflict. So the conflict seemed to boil down to, with all the backstory, like I just told you. You guys still awake? You all right? Good? I didn't lose you. I fall asleep a little bit on the historical stuff. So, all right, if this, is, this is where it gets good. So in case you, you want to wake up, there's a good spot. Um, so the, the, the real conflict seemed to boil down to this, that with all the backstory that we have, a little bit about the Hebraic people as well as the Hellenistic people, um, it seemed to focus on the issue of, of widows. So, so why, why widows? Well, widows in the first century were probably identified as probably the most um, vulnerable of, of people within that community. So again, we've made some major advances socially and societally um, as far as women's rights and so on and so forth. But back in that day, women did not have rights of their own. In fact, women, for the most part, were completely at the mercy of, of man, a man within society. So without the accompaniment of a man, you, for the most part, were completely vulnerable. So there was massive impetus on your behalf and incentive for you to get married as quickly as you can. So if you're young, it's one of the reasons why a lot of times women would get married really young, because the sooner they get married, the sooner, at least in theory, the sooner they would be uh, well taken care of. They would have a place to live. They would have a home. They would have some hope for a future within that context, with that culture. And I realize that may sound repulsive to some of you, but the point of the matter is that was just the way that it was. Now, let's say, for example, if your husband died. I mean, if your husband died and you have no father to go to or all your brothers are gone or you don't have any brothers, you literally have nothing. You can't just go out and get a job at Starbucks. You can't somehow figure out a way to make a living. This is one of the reasons why often women would be driven into prostitution. It was a viable means to make money. Or 
enter into an alternative form of marriage where you would have become part of a, of a multi-family marriage unit where uh, you would try to find yourself, get married to someone that might have three or four other women. But again, at least in your mind, you don't marry for love, you marry for protection, you marry for covering. So women that were coming to meet Jesus in the early first century were, were coming to the church and needed help, which tells us a little bit about uh, the social structure of the culture. Um, Caesar was not providing uh, resources and funds and money um, and welfare to take care of these very vulnerable people in society. The church was. The church was coming together saying, the women are vulnerable, the women have no means, the women are, are for the most part, outcast in the largest society and culture, and we, that's not okay with us. We don't think it's okay with God. So we want to figure out a, a means by which we can help them. So into that category or canopy, you have the Hebraic women, which already stands a reason. This is kind of the larger people group. The he- Hebrew women that were kind of kosher and following Yahweh. Think Ruth. Think Naomi, if you're familiar with that story. Trying to follow God. Now they, they're following Jesus. And then you have these Hellenists that are kind of like outsiders. They're not part of the typical society within Judaism. And they might not dress or look like the typical Jewish person. They might wear the hair differently, and they might um, they, they don't talk in the Hebraic tongue or Aramaic. They speak a foreign language, and there is this prejudice in the back of the minds of perhaps some of the Jewish people of like, ah, maybe they're the ones. <laughs> they're the ones. That lady, that background, her offspring, or her, I should say, her family line, all the way up, is responsible for this diaspora. So you have these deep embedded prejudices, and it's that conflict that comes together that for some reason, these Hellenist widows are not being well taken care of. They felt as if they were being omitted, and they bring this conflict to the early church. Now, again, hopefully that gives a little bit of a background or backstory as to why this situation is so explosive. Some scholars and theologians have, have, have noted that if this was not taken care of carefully or well attended to, this could have actually become sort of the catalyst for a major church split. Um, in other words, you have sort of this Hellenistic flavor of Christianity breaking away from this Hebraic flavor of Christianity. You would have uh, multiple tribes, which, you know, again, obviously, if you know anything about church history, you know there's, that's already happened. So now today we've got 30,000 different denominations that are of the Jesus flavor, and they all vary in massive flavors, you know. But the point of the matter is you can trace most of these things back to some form of inability to resolve conflict in every single instance. So, big question is, how did they get to this point of resolve? And this is where I want to focus the rest of our time to think about, because we do see that resolution or redemption happened in this story. It doesn't happen in every story, but it happened in this story, and it led to something absolutely beautiful. It led to sort of the constant mission of God then beginning to go forth. In other words, put it another way, because there was resolution, it actually led forth to healing and wholeness, beginning to make its way out from this Jerusalem church that had every potential situation of fragmenting and dividing. You guys following along so far? So let's take a look a little bit about this type of resolution that took place in this situation. Now, the fact of the matter is that every single one of us, to some degree, at some point, have either gone through or going through currently. I mean, this is like, this is like a present-day situation, or at some point, cheer up, you will go through some form of conflict. Now, if I were to ask you, 
what scale of conflict would you find yourself in? Would it be either relatively little? Would it be moderate or the extreme a lot? Um, Don't want you to answer that necessarily, but at least in your mind, think about it. What scale of conflict, what scale of trouble, of suffering, of hardship do you find yourself going on in your life? Uh, What's the source of it? It could be from external things. It could be from relationships. But the point of the matter is, at some point, we will go through conflict. So here's a couple of things I want to talk about real quickly. These are sort of preliminary observations before we jump into the remainder of the passage and wrap it up. One is I see that suffering or conflict or stress, uh, are slides working? They'll pop on in a second here. Uh, One is that we see that it's actually a part of our world. That stress and conflict is just simply a part of our broken world. Like we... So here's the thing. Sometimes people come to Christianity or follow Jesus because they're like, oh my gosh, the world around me is falling apart. I need Jesus so my world does not have stress or conflict anymore. Look, if, if, if you buy into that narrative, you'll be radically let down the moment you enter in the church because we're a bunch of screwed up, messed up, stress-ridden, conflict-ridden people. Like, but there's a difference, I think, and I'll try to unpack that and hopefully make my point for that at the end. But the point of the matter is, is that no matter who you are, no matter where you are in this life, there will be stress. It will find you. We can't get away from it. It's just simply a part of this broken world. Second thing is that it's not always a bad thing. That stress is not always a bad thing. Um, there's a little freebie. I'll throw this in. There's this really amazing TED Talk I recently listened to. Um, this gal by the name of Kenny, uh, or, sorry, Kelly McGonigal. She has this like, little um, uh, uh, TED Talk. It's called How to Make Stress Your Friend. And, and what's, what I found really fascinating about this is she actually goes into the science, the actual science that has proven that how you handle, how you think about stress actually will either determine whether or not stress will become a, a source of brokenness and destruction, maybe heart, you know, heart attack or whatever in your life, or become a means of healing and wholeness and relationship building and so on and so forth. It's fascinating. It's really, really fascinating. It's, it's one of those TED Talks I want to listen to like five or six more times just so that it becomes a part of my thinking, because it's so, so good. I don't think the gal's a Christian, just FYI, um, but some of the things that she says, if you can, if you can um, listen to it, I, I think with a strong enough understanding of the gospel, um, some of the things that she says are, are, are phenomenal, and they have like radical gospel implications for that as well. But anyway, it's a really fascinating thing. But the point that, that I would make here is that stress is not always a bad thing. We have a tendency to think that um, conflict or stress is really bad, so we've got to avoid it, and we'll talk more about that in a second. And thirdly... We see that, one, one final thing I'll say about stress is not always a bad thing. There's this great proverb, and I'll just kind of bring it back to kind of a biblical concept with that. Proverb 14, um, 4 says this, great passage. It says, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. <laughs> but from the strength of an ox comes an abundant harvest. Okay, so think about this. A lot of us, we try to live our lives, we're like, oh, my life is so messy and grimy and gritty and it's so filled with like conflict and stress. Um, and and what, what Solomon wisely said is that a lot of times we live in this sort of ethereal world that says, if I can just get my life clean and free from stress and conflict and everything, it'll be awesome. And the point that he's making with this great proverb is that, like, look, you can have an absolutely clean stall, and the only time your stall, your manger, is ever going to be clean is because you don't have a donkey in there, you don't have an ox in there. But if you're going to have oxen in there, you're going to have living, breathing, animated-type animals in there, things in there, then it's going to be absolutely messy and smelly, but that will become the source of life. That's a hard thing for us to understand. But, again, it plays into this whole idea, this notion that it's not always a bad thing. Thirdly, if stewarded wisely, it's a big emphasis on the word if. If 
stewarded wisely, it has the potential for benefit and growth. So if you, if we steward um, the conflict that we find coming to our lives in a right way, uh, then it has the potential to bring about benefit and growth. So let's take a look at some of these elements that we see play into the passage here. So I want to look at basically four things that we see with regard to not only how they handled this conflict and a stressful situation, but I think also become somewhat of a template. So this is radically just practical stuff for you to think about. You can write it down and take notes. I have it up on the screen. But uh, just listen. First of all, what we notice about these people is this early church, when they were confronted with this conflict, they actually engaged the conflict. Um, This is in opposition to disengagement. Um, Oftentimes, we want to just pull away and run away from conflict. We're the type of people that was described. I got a book recommendation. I'll show you the next slide. A guy by the name of Ken Sandy. Uh, fantastic author, writer, um, just a lot of insight. So, uh, again, I, I would just highly recommend that if you've ever gone through conflict, you've got conflict with relationships or people in your life right now, marriage, family, whatever, honestly, really just do yourself a service and, and read some good information on it. And it's funny, it's like if, if you're an artist or you're an architect or you're somebody in your job and your boss comes and says, hey, I need you to go out and do this, um, you know, and it's, it's, to you, it's like this, this task that you've never done before. I was talking with a guy about this the other day, and I was just saying that, look, in your job or in your creativity, if you don't have the goods to make it happen, you go out and then you begin to do some research. You know, you watch YouTube videos to figure out how to, you know, install tile behind your counter or how to, you know, put it in a toilet, or you, you know, go on to Pinterest and get new creative ideas. You think of all these different means by which to begin to educate yourself, but oftentimes, you discover, when it comes to life conflict, we just, like, avoid it. We're like, we run away. And we carry this pattern. It's, so in relationships, we run away. And it looks like running away looks like divorce. It looks like spending the night at a hotel rather than in the bed with your spouse. It looks like running to another church because rather than dealing with a conflict, you just run away. It's easier. It looks like leaving behind friends. It looks like unfriending people. Now, in some cases, it is probably, perhaps, it can be a healthy thing to kind of distance yourself from abusive-type circumstances. That's a whole other point. But the point that I would make in going back to this is if you have conflict, educate yourself. Listen to good stuff. Read good books. Find uh, means by which you can inform your heart and train your understanding to look at these things from a different way. So Ken Sandy in his book, basically, I'll just summarize the whole book for you, um, but there's, I would highly encourage reading it anyhow, but there's three things he basically describes the way that we oftentimes handle conflict and stress is he describes, one, there are people that are called peacemakers. These are people that basically ignore conflict. They, they turn away from it. They bury their head in the sand. They, they run away. They disengage. They don't want to admit to it. Um, some of you are, are kind of that type of personality. Like, I don't want to deal with this. I'm just going to run away from it. He describes those types of people as peace fakers. The second category he describes as peace breakers. These are people that basically uh, tur- turn, you know, uber aggressive. They're like, at the moment some form of conflict arises, they're just like, they get their game face on, they want to wrestle, they want to fight, because they like that. They are into engagement, clashes, fighting, uh, you know, they, they are into basically getting aggressive. He describes them as peace breakers. And then finally he describes, obviously as the title of the book, is our peacemakers. And, and look, the early church, they recognized the teachings of Jesus had a special emphasis and aim upon this concept of being peace.
peacemaker. Jesus said himself, blessed are peacemakers. So this early church had this narrative in their mind that says, no, God is a peacemaker. God is making us a community of peacemakers. So what do we do in the midst of conflict? Do we get arrogant and aggressive and fight? Put our feet down and angrily attack? Do we run away? Do we turn our back? Do we disengage? Or do we do the best that we can to engage it in a way that brings about peace? That's exactly what they did. And it led to this radical movement that just had no stopping of it. So we see, first of all, that they engaged the conflict that they had coming their way. Second thing that we see is they actually took this humble and teachable posture. Humble, teachable posture. This is, in other words, non-defensiveness. Now, this is, this is really tough for us a lot of times. I think probably out of all of these, this may be the most challenging. So somewhere within the context of the early church, when they were, uh, now again, uh, who were the apostles? The apostles were those guys that were hand-selected by Jesus. Now, where did all these guys come from? For the most part, they all came from this region of Galilee, which meant these were all traditional Jewish, Hebraic uh, followers of Yahweh that are now followers of Jesus. So in other words, these guys were good Jewish men overseeing the church. But now you have, quote-unquote, not good Jewish people entering into the church, and they bring this conflict to the, to, the, uh, to the leaders, to Peter, John, James, so on and so forth. And what's amazing is at some point, had they reacted or responded in great defensiveness, this movement could have been shut down immediately. I mean, had the apostles basically responded by saying, well, this is our church, this is our community, we're Jewish after all, you guys are not really good Jews after all, so therefore we are the ones in charge, we have the majority vote, we are the better of you guys you guys are responsible for X, Y, and Z. It, could have, it would have shut things down immediately, but that's not what happened. So the only reason why I think we can safely assume is that things move towards healing is because they had this humble, teachable posture that at some point they were able to sit down and say, let me hear what's going on in your heart. Let, let me hear what you're feeling. Let me hear what you're perceiving. Let me feel it. Let me understand it. I, I want to I do the best that I can to try to comprehend what it is that you're feeling and how marginalized. Now, this is the heart for us because, again, like I said, we have this tendency, this temptation to want to defend ourselves, to be right. We don't like having our errors, our faults, or our flaws, or our weaknesses exposed. So we fight, we resist, we put up these walls, we have bravado, we are arrogant, we're loud, we're obnoxious, and yet what we really need is to be humble and teachable. Let me give you an example. Also, you know, since I'm, I'm up here, I'll throw my head on the chopping block. But I'll, I'll show, like, personal examples for me. So this is, like, confession of the pastor time. So, um, so for me, like, what this looks like in my, my marriage, in my family, like, like my wife is, is amazing. Like, she's a humble, uh, teachable, loving, gentle, exact opposite of me. Uh, honestly, like, really in every single way. Um, I'm the loud, talkative one in that context, and she's like the humble, gentle. So there, you can imagine this is where the conflict oftentimes arises. So for me, the types of uh, problem-solving and solutions that need to take place typically look something like this. I need to sit down and just simply let her communicate to me, speak to me, tell me the areas in which I've, I've, I've offended her, when I've been wrong. But what I've learned over the years is that if I speak for it, my wife is really strong as well. She, she knows how to be strong and say, call a shot what it is. Um, I, I've had to learn to just simply say to my wife, like, look, um, I, I want to hear 
what you have to say. And I'm, I, I, I will not fire back, and I will not say anything. Just, I'll, I'm here to hear. I'm not going to have my body language show you arrogance or pride. I, 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 will, I will simply listen to what you have to say. Because if you're offended, I want to feel that offense, and I want to make it right. That's hard for me. Now let me bleed over into the relationship with, with, with my, my, I have two daughters, so I'm surrounded by, by women. Um, and, and, and every once in a while, you know, cycles can somehow like overlap to where, you know, that gets really gnarly sometimes. But um, my wife's not here, by the way, this week, so if she was, I'd probably be in trouble by this right now. But um, the point that I would make is that there are occasions where I have to like, with, with, with my daughters, just simply listen to them. And there are occasions where I can over-talk to them and make my point. That's what I do for a living. I talk. I talk. So, so I, I can sometimes use that power to somehow get my point across. But what I've discovered that when I do that with my daughter, it, it could put her in the space where she's just like, I'm not even talking to him anymore because he doesn't want to listen. And she shuts down. And what I need to do and what, I, what I've learned to do, and sometimes if I forget, then my wife you know, nudges me gently, kindly, sometimes with, uh, you know, um, she gets physically aggressive and kicks me, but um, I'm in therapy on that. So, you know. anyways, um, and, and I have to sit down at the edge of my bed and just say, "Dad's listening," and I'm I'm sorry for talking and over talking and my body language. So if she's talking and I'm like rolling my eyes, those are nonverbal cues that say I don't want to hear you. So I have to train myself to just simply shut up and listen. And that, and that is what I mean by being humble, having this posture of humility and, and teachability. And so somehow the early church had to engage this. Minus the eye rolling. Minus the huffs. Minus these nonverbal cues that we oftentimes give that are just subtle ways of saying, I'm not, I don't care what you have to say. All I want to do is I want to justify my actions. But that posture will always lead to the same path. Brokenness. Always. Always the same path. And so somehow the church was able to do this. I'll actually come back to Philippians passage in just a minute when I'm done here. And one final thing, I'm going to wrap this up, is the third thing that we see is that uh, they involved others. The, the early church, when they were dealing with this conflict, they, they realized that the early leaders, Peter, James, John, they literally did not have the bandwidth to figure this whole situation out. They just did not have the ability, the availability, the time, the bandwidth to somehow make this crisis situation into a pathway of, of healing. So what, what they did is they actually involved others. They brought others. In fact, we're told specifically what they did is that they recognized you know, what, what our role is. You know, they, that's where they basically described two things. They said it's not right for us, for us to leave the preaching of the Word of God, serve tables, uh, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. Um, and I, I can do a whole other sermon on that, but I'm not going to. But at, at this point, I'm just going to simply say is that they, they knew what they were called to do. They knew by adding other things, they would not either be able to do this prayer and teaching of the word thing effectively, or they would not be able to, if they focus on that, then they would not be able to do this reconciliation and restoration type thing effectively as well. So they, they called in others who they believed could, could help. And we're told of seven men that actually come in. So we're told, and this is where it gets really important, it says, uh, they called in seven uh, that were of good repute, they're full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, and it says that they were to be appointed for this duty. So 
Um, again, the seven names of the, the, the people that were described. Um, what, what's fascinating to me is it's sort of this profile, like who to look for to bring in to help bring resolve to this potentially destructive conflict. Listen again. Men of good, good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and great wisdom. So the bottom line is this, is they recognize that we need help. We need others to come in to be part of this resolution because right now we, we, we can't do it on our own. So sometimes we, as, you know, people that are in the midst of conflict, we have this tendency sometimes to not always shut other people out, but what we do is the people that we bring in are the wrong people. We bring in people that are not wise. They're, they're foolish. They are not filled with the Holy Spirit. They're filled with carnality. They're not of good reputation. They have a horrible reputation. And we start spilling our guts to them and communicating to them and commiserating with them. And they have nothing of value or hope or help to offer us except commiseration. You know what that is, right? It's just gathering together with somebody that has gone through the same types of crappy experiences as you, and all you do is you just talk about how horrible your lives are and how horrible the people are that have caused your lives to be so horrible, and you commiserate with them. You never advance on into resolution. It's nothing but conflict and tension. It's because of the type of people. You did not get people that are filled with the Holy Spirit, people that have great wisdom, and people that are known for the reputation of honesty and respectability. So what I would suggest is really kind of a question I would ask is who are the people in your life right now that are filled with the Holy Spirit, that are wise and have great reputation that you are actually taking your garbage to to have them speak into your life? So I realize for many of us, that's kind of like, ah, uh, n- no one, um, or you're sharing it with the wrong people and therefore you are constantly just prolonging this pathway of, healing. And the early church recognized we, we need these people to help us. One final layer, I'll say, is that each of these guys, what's interesting as far as the, the, the story, it tells us that each of these people, their names, and there's seven of them, of course, and I'm going to read their names again, but every single name that's here is, is interesting because every name here is, is not a Hebrew name. It's, they're all Greek names, which tells us who did they get to bring about to help bring resolution in this Great situation, um, Hebrew or uh, Greek-speaking people. <laughs> in other words, they welcome into this complex community Greek-speaking people that have Greek background, Greek influences, Greek traditions to help bring about resolve. We are beginning to see this little Hebraic community take the shape of Jesus, and it begins to grow and expand and diversify and. It all began, really, within this situation of conflict. And final thing I'll see is we see, fourthly, um, that they prayed together. Last passage right there in verse 6, let me just read it. It says, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid hands on them. So they took these seven men that are Greek-speaking, Greek-traditional, Greek-influenced, um, and they lay hands on them. They pray together. They don't push them away. They don't alienate them. They're like, oh, you guys are part of the, the, the bad group of people. They said, no, no, you are our brothers and sisters in Jesus, and we believe that God wants to empower you right now to help bring resolution into this very conflict-ridden situation. We're going to pray for you. So what happens is rather than alienation, they brought them in and they pray for them. And what's, what's amazing is that when people pray together, it has this ability to actually bring wholeness and healing. Um, 
I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that it's, it's almost impossible to be in the context where you can sit down and break bread and dip it in the cup and have communion, the Lord's Supper, and then pray with each other in that context and still remain anger and a posture of arrogance towards one another. You can't. I mean, some are like, I mean, if you're here, like, I can do it. Like, like congratulations, you have just effectively uh, recognized the fact that you are learning to be a really good hypocrite. But, but for the, most of us, like, like, we can't do that. Like, that's impossible for us to actually engage like that because at some point, either we just don't pray and we, because we keep this callousness about our heart or we confess sin and our problems, and we bring resolution, because that's what God does. That's what prayer does. Um, church prayed with each other. And I would suggest, we, we do that every week. We, we offer opportunities for people to just pray with one another. A lot of times, we constantly prolong healing or resolution in the broken spaces of our lives because of one of the breakdowns in one of these areas. We either refuse to engage the conflict, uh, we either take a humble or teachable posture where we're always wanting to justify ourselves, we're always wanting to be the one in the right, and we might, you might not even notice that. Like, the fact of the matter is some of you are like, I don't even think I'd do that. One of the best things that you can do then is just ask someone that's really close to you. Ask them in a humble way. Ask them. By, I mean, honestly, I challenge you to do this. If you're married, go to your spouse. If you have roommates, go to your roommates and simply say something like this. If I promise you I will not get mad or angry or pop attitude or treat you in some sort of a, a weird passive-aggressive way the rest of the day, um, would, you, would you be willing to answer an honest question for me? And if they're like, yeah, sure, I guess, like, what's up? Ask them, am I, am I humble or am I arrogant? Do I listen or am I always talking? Honestly, I really want to know because I want to be a peacemaker. Um, that, that's really painful. But, but I, I might suggest something to you, that, that unless you have people that can speak in your life, that you're just going to keep going on being this person that is always trying to angle your way into being justified and right, and you will miss the very kingdom of God that Jesus came to bring to you. So, it's a big deal. The early church could have literally, like, come and done at this, at this point. Like, I mean, we know, obviously, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it, but the point of the matter is, it was trying the gates of hell were trying to destroy and crumble this brand new movement. Which brings me to the final thing, and I want to wrap it up with this. I'll have the worship team come on up and just for you to think about this. Is like, what, what was their motivation for this resolution? What motivated them? Um, what I think about this is this passage, Philippians. And I'll just read it to you. So just listen to this as we kind of now move into a moment of just response. Um, Philippians says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. The word look that's actually used there, that Paul uses, is this word scopeo. We get the English word scope from, like, microscope or telescope. And you think about what you do when you look through a microscope or telescope is that you, you are spending time observing something from a different perspective, different angle. This is exactly what, what Paul is basically saying, is that, look, if, if you want to be like Jesus, if you, you want to bring healing, then you need to be able to look not only at your own circumstances and your situations, you have to be willing somehow to objectively look uh, through someone else's lens. And, and this, is, this is where the motivation comes from, because for some of you, you the, the thought of conflict in your life is so acute right now, it's painful to even 
suggested. I mean, in even just the, the phrase conflict, it brings up, you know, a broken relationship you have with a, a father or marriage is like breaking apart or child or relationship with a, with a son or a daughter or a parent. And it just brings to memory sort of this background, this uh, pain and hurt. And yet the reality is what we see is this community of early Christians were not immune to conflict. They were a community of people that recognized that when conflict arises, God also embeds this self-repairing capacity. Paul would later describe it as the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. In other words, the same spirit of God, life-breathing breath of God that breathed over the dead body of Jesus and reanimated it. It's the same Spirit of God that is in you right now who is wanting to give the capacity, the power, the ability for you to live in these relationships that are broken and fraying and coming undone to be a source of life because the source of life is in you, Jesus Christ, risen again from the dead, to bring healing, to bring wholeness. That this early community of Christians, they recognized that they were in constant broken relationship with God. And yet God didn't just simply look at things from their angle. That's what Paul says in this Philippians passage, that Jesus actually, God is come into the flesh in Jesus, not to the point where Jesus just looks at things from our angle, but Jesus literally feels everything from our angle. He knows what it's like to live in a relationship of betrayal. He knows what it's like to be mocked to be ashamed, to deal with the fact that your life, everything that you've held on to has been exposed and open and you are naked and people are mocking and laughing at you. He knows that pain in the most profound sense. And, and what Paul is saying is that to the degree that you know that you're part of this community that has entered into deep conflict, to the degree that you see that God has actually made provision and way for you to be made whole through that, then you will also now become a source of wholeness and healing into the relationships that are fraying and broken that you're engaged in right now. So the invitation for you is to come. Not disengage, not ignore, not deny, but to recognize, I'm broken. I've not only been broken by others, but in my state of brokenness, I've broken others. But come, come to the table that Jesus lays open. He says, eat my bread, drink my cup, and be made whole. Because like you, I was broken. Like you, I was betrayed. Like you, I was crushed and destroyed. But potentially like you, I've come out on the other end and become this life-giving reality. And I invite you, Jesus would say, to enter into that. So my invitation for you is to enter into the story that God is opening up for you. Enter in that story of wholeness, of healing, of seeing conflict not as the end of your life, but as potentially the beginning of something that, that's, that's beautiful, that's powerful, that's life-changing. So why don't we all stand and let's respond I'll pray real briefly, and we'll just sing a few songs. We'll respond. If you're here this morning and you need prayer, 
honestly, honestly. Yeah, some of you have like varying degrees of, of conflict in your life. And for some of you, the temptation would be to be like, I, I, I don't want to talk about it. That feels raw and I feel naked. And, and I hate to say this, but, but you, you'll walk out of here and you'll just keep trying to recycle through your own brokenness and you, you won't get anywhere. It, you'll keep living by that same moralistic story that says pull yourself up by your own bootstraps but the gospel is is one that basically says look your boots are down and you have no straps like you you are literally naked like you you need help but i'm here to help you so so my my encouragement to you would be don't don't go another day just ignoring or denying or avoiding but open yourself up and say god I, i need help make yourself known Invite other people to pray for you, to speak in your life, to give you wisdom, to impart information or ideas or understanding that are life-giving. Or you can just set, settle for people that commiserate with and go nowhere. <laughs> but the invitation that God gives to you is one of incredible life, fulfillment, purpose, wholeness. So good. The Bible actually describes it as salvation, saving. So God, thank you for what you offer us. Uh, we open our hearts up to you. We just say we, we want you. We need you. We don't just want you, but we need you, God. We are broken people that have turned our backs on you. We've sinned. We've missed the mark. And yet, God, we also want to be people that hear your voice, that respond to your call and come running to you, casting our cares down upon you, want to be remade, reshaped by you. So... We respond by taking of communion. We respond by confessing sin. We respond by going through that humble, humbling process of inviting others into our lives to pray for us. So let's respond. Let's sing. Let's some people over off by the cross. I'll be up here if you guys want to come talk to me. I'm happy to just pray with you as well. But let's, let's respond. Let's sing.